Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. You, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. It's always good seeing everybody getting their Bibles out. Exodus chapter 33. You know, we've been through the book of Exodus for a long time now. And we've been focusing on Moses. And when you stop and think about it, Moses was a man like no other. There's really no other character in the Old Testament like Moses. Think about all the experiences that Moses got to experience. All the way back, starting in Exodus chapter 3, where God appeared to him at the burning bush and spoke to him out of the burning bush. Then in Exodus chapter 4, Moses throws down his staff and it becomes a snake. And the snake eats up all of the other snakes of the Egyptian astrologers. Just an amazing scene there. And then you think about the ten plagues. Moses got to go into Pharaoh's court and he got to see these amazing plagues come upon Egypt. Gnats and flies and hailstones and darkness and finally the the angel of death passing over. And then Moses got to hold up his staff and see the Red Sea part. Like, Like a this is an amazing scene as two million people cross through. And the Egyptians were drowned. And then in Exodus 15, after they had passed through the Red Sea, which was miraculous enough, uh, the water was bitter and Moses throws the tree into the water and it becomes sweet to where they could drink it. And then Moses got to see the manna and the quail come down from heaven every day to provide for the Israelites. He saw the pillar of smoke. He saw the pillar of fire at night to lead them. In Exodus chapter 17, he split the water, or he split the rock, and the water gushed out. You remember he held up his arms as the Amalekites were defeated under Joshua's leadership. He was up on the mountain 40 days. 40 nights, receiving direct communication from God on how to build the tabernacle and receiving the Ten Commandments. And then as we looked at last week, Moses would go out to his private tent, and there he would commune with the Lord in this friendship type of relationship. Deuteronomy 34.10, There has not arisen a prophet since... In Israel, like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. If there was anybody in the Old Testament who experienced the glory and presence and power of the Lord, it had to be Moses. Just all the things that he got to experience that nobody else got to experience. And yet as we see today, and this, is, this amazes me, this is a wonderful passage of Scripture, Moses is not satisfied 
with where he is with the Lord. In other words, Moses wants more of God. Moses wants more of God's glory. As if he's not experienced enough. Now, what's the problem with the Israelites that we looked at last week? What's the problem? They've been disciplined. They've had to uh, repent because of the golden calf. And, and God says to them, listen, I'm sending you to the promised land, but I'm not going with you. And this was a disastrous report because the people were freaking out. We, we, we don't want an angel to lead us. We want God to go with us. And God says, I'll get you there, but I'm not going with you. And this doesn't set well with Moses. <laughs> As we've seen time and time again, Moses goes straight to God and says, God, you may want to rethink things. Moses, you may want to think that Moses says to God, you may want to think this thing through. And so Moses goes, and as he's done often, he communes directly with God. And so Moses is out in his private tent outside the camp, and we have to ask the question, what does Moses pray? How does Moses feel about God not going with them? Well, we get to hear Moses' conversation with the living God. So let's pick up in Exodus chapter 33, verse 12. Moses is in his private tent. He's talking to the Lord. What's he saying? How is Moses interceding on behalf of the Israelites? Exodus 33, 12. Moses said to the Lord, See... You say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. You've said, I know you by name, and you've also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And God said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And Moses said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you've spoken I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And underline this in your Bible because it's the greatest request ever. Verse 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Now here's the big idea for this morning. Here's the main point. Here's Moses' desire. should be your desire as well. So here's the issue. Our greatest desire should be to experience the full glory of God. Our desire, our greatest desire, should be to experience the full 
glory of God. Now, this brings up some questions. <laughs> what is the full glory of God that we long to experience? So Moses goes to God, and he asks him a couple of questions. So let's look at these questions. Question number one that Moses asked the Lord is basically saying, God, you're commanding me to lead this people, but you're not really telling me who this angel is. I don't really want an angel to lead us, God. I want you. We see this in verse 12. See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you'll send with me. God, I, I really don't want an angel. I want you to lead us. And then question number two, God, this is confusing because in the same breath that you're going to have an angel lead us, you, you, you're confusing me because you said there, uh, you know me by name and I found favor in your sight. So if I found favor in your sight and you, and you know me by name, then why aren't you going with us? We're your chosen people, God. Don't, don't just send an angel ahead. We want your presence. In other words, Moses is saying, listen, God, an angel's not enough. I'm not going to settle for anything less than your presence, God. We want you. We don't want an angel. We don't know what this angel's name is. We want you. And then after asking these questions, Moses gives some requests. And let me just stop and say this. I think it's very, very important when you look at a recorded prayer in the Bible from an actual mouth of somebody praying, it often informs how we should pray. So when we think about how Moses is praying here, let's help that inform how we should be praying ourselves. What's he asking God for? Here, here's his first request. Request number one. We see this in verse 13. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, here's his request, please show me now your ways that I may know you. Show me your ways, God. Now, that, that's a weird request when you think about it. I think it's a weird request for Moses to say, show me your ways, because hasn't Moses seen enough of God? I mean, if anybody can say, God, show me your ways, okay, Moses, let me list off all the things for you. The burning bush, the Red Sea, the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, the water from the rock. Well, it's a strange request that Moses says, Lord, show me your ways. But notice what Moses is saying. God, I want to know you more than I know you now. Newsflash. Anytime you think you've got God figured out, you may want to think twice. Moses is like, God, I, I want to know your ways. If anybody that, that needed to pray that, it seems weird for Moses to pray, God, show me your ways. Moses doesn't have God figured out. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. God said, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God, I want to know your ways. I want to know you more deeply. It's really Moses' heartbeat. God, I want to know you more deeply. It reminds me of Paul's heartbeat. Pastor Andrew read it earlier during our time of confession. What was Paul's desire in Philippians chapter 3? 
In Philippians 3.8, this was Paul's desire. Paul said, indeed, I count everything I lost because of the surpassing worth of what? What's the surpassing worth? What's worth more than anything? Knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Is this your prayer? Lord, I want to know your ways. I want to know you more deeply. I haven't figured you out yet, God, but please show me your ways. Please show me your will. I want to be led by you. I want to be guided by you. I want to know you more deeply. A.W. Tozer, in his famous book, The Pursuit of God, has a great quote. And I'm going to unpack this quote because when you first hear it, you're like, what in the world does it mean? A.W. Tozer said this. To have found God and still to be pursuing God is the soul's paradox of love. Now let me, let's think about that for a moment. To have found God and still be looking for God is the soul's paradox of love. Okay, has Moses found God? Or has God found Moses? And is Moses still looking for God? Yes. If you're a Christian, here's the point. You've been saved by grace and you have God. But are you content with that or do you want more of him? It's a paradox. You're saved. I got my free ticket to heaven. I got my ticket punched. Well, that's all fine and great. But do you desire daily more of Jesus? This is Moses' heartbeat. This is Paul's heartbeat. It's the heartbeat of any true believer that would say, it's not just that I found God, I want to still be pursuing God and to be seeking His face. Psalm 27, 4. One thing I've asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in His temple. Yes, as a Christian, you have a permanent relationship with Christ. You're saved by grace. But do you want to know him more? Think about it this way. It'd be like, okay, Don and I last summer celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary. It'd be like I go to Don and say, hey, you know what? We've been married for 25 years. That's awesome. We exchanged vows 25 years ago. But you know what, Don? I'm going to go live in a hotel the next six months, and you just kind of fend for yourself and have fun. And uh, by the way, we'll, we'll maybe text each other once in a while, and you can kind of tell me how your month is going, and um, we'll just communicate that way. Now, some of you be like, okay, we need to, like, get Sean and Dawn into some serious marriage counseling if this is happening. Okay, we're married. Yay, 25 years, yay. But if I don't pursue her, if I don't daily engage her, if I don't woo her, if I don't desire to spend time with her, it doesn't really show I love her. And so just because you have a relationship with Christ, great. Maybe for 25 years, but if you're not daily pursuing Christ, if you're not daily engaging Christ, if you're not wanting more of Christ, if you're not seeking his face daily, this is what's the heartbeat of Moses. So that's his first request. You see it right there. Show me your ways that I may know you more deeply. I want to know your ways, God. I want to know you more deeply. I want to seek your face. And this is crazy coming from Moses. If anybody had seen God's ways, it's Moses. But Moses wants more. He doesn't have God figured out. Okay, second request. 
Verse 13. Moses keeps reminding God of this as if God has forgotten. Oh, consider at the end of verse 13. Consider too that this is this nation is your people. Oh, by the way, God, we're your chosen people. You've entered into a covenant with us. You, you've, you've bound yourself to us in covenant love. You've chosen us. We're your people. So God, please don't abandon us. Go with us. And then God answers Moses' request. Two reassuring answers. Notice what God says in verse 14. My presence. Literally, that word presence there in the Hebrew is my face. It's very important. God, my face. My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Wow. Isn't that what Moses has wanted all along? God, we don't want an angel. We want you. And God says, all right, Moses, my presence is going with you. And we never hear a mention of the angel from this point forward. God will go with them. And God will give them rest. In the context of this, rest means the promised land. God's going to get them to the promised land, the the rest of the land flowing with milk and honey. God says, I'm going with you, and I'm going to give you rest. And Listen to Moses. I love Moses. Look at verse 15. Moses is like, okay, this is what I've been waiting for, God. And notice what he says to God. If your presence will not go with me, don't bring us up from here. You hear what Moses says? God, if you're not going to go with us, we're not moving forward. We're not going to take one step forward unless your presence is with us. We desperately need you, God. And I wonder if that is your prayer as an individual, if that's your prayer as a family, if that's our prayer as a church, that we would say to God, God, we're not taking one step forward unless you go with us. Because we can go a lot of directions on our own, can't we? We can make a lot of decisions on our own. I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to make my own decisions. We're going to chart our own course as a family, as an individual, as a church. But Moses says, God, we're not going to take one step unless you go with us. Your presence is the most important thing in our lives. We want to know you more deeply, God. We want to know your ways. We want you. Not an angel. An angel's not good enough. We want you. And then in verse 16, have you ever like asked somebody a question and answered the question as you're asking the question? That's kind of what Moses does in verse 16. He begins to ask God a question, and he's like, okay, I'm answering my own question here. Look at verse 16. How, it's a how question, how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight? Okay, how's this going to be true, God? How are you going to go with us? How are you going to prove yourself to us? I and the people? Oh, I'm answering my own question. Is it not that you're going with us that we're distinct? I and your people from every other tribe, people on the face of the earth. Basically, what Moses says is, I know why you're promising to go with us, God, is because we're your chosen people. We're your elect. We're your special people. You've chosen us. You've chosen us out of all the nations of the earth to be a nation that we're entering into covenant with. We're your chosen people. So, God, we know you're going with us because you swore an unbreakable oath saying that you would get us to the promised land. Okay, here's what amazes me about this passage of Scripture. What has Moses already asked for? 
God, I want to know your ways. Coming from Moses. But in verse 18, you see the most breathtaking, awesome, intimidating, powerful, bold request that Moses will ever ask. What does he say in verse 18? Moses said, please show me your glory. (laughs) Please show me your glory. This is Moses, who's seen a lot. He's seen a lot. But for him, the ultimate is, God, I've seen a lot. I've seen the Red Sea part. I've seen the burning bush. I've seen water come out of a rock. I've been up on this mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. But there's one thing I want more than anything. I want to see with my own eyes your brilliant, unadulterated glory in all of its majesty and splendor. That's the heartbeat of my soul, is to see you, God, in all of your glory. That's a bold request. In other words, you'd say, Moses wants the whole enchilada. Now, what does God do? Does God promise to show Moses his full unadulterated, powerful glory. No, but God does promise something. Notice what verse 19 says. Moses asks for glory, and what does God say? I will make all my goodness. Now pay attention to the words here. God doesn't say, I will make all my glory pass before you. He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. So God says, I'm going to show you two things, Moses. You want to see my glory, but what I'm going to give you is I'm going to give you my goodness, and I'm going to give you my name. And those two things are inextricably, I don't even know if that's a word, linked together. His goodness and his name. Remember that God's name is really the essence of who God is. Everything about God is wrapped up in his name. His his name is co-equal with his essence. And so this glory that God's going to show Moses is not the shining, brilliant, bright, powerful, overpowering majesty. It's God's name. And God's name is wrapped up in God's goodness. And God's name is wrapped up in God's glory. So God's goodness is really who God is at the core of his being as God. The goodness of God. Psalm 31, 19. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you've stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. How abundant is your goodness. Isaiah 63, 7. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has granted us and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he's granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. The abundance of goodness and the great goodness. Titus 3, 4 through 6, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, 
but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Do you thank the Lord for his goodness? When I was a kid, we used to sing the song. You know the song. God is so good. God is so good. God is so good. He's so good to me. Trite, short, powerful. God is so good to me. He's good. So God says to Moses, I'm going to show you my goodness, but I'm also going to show you my name. Now, how do you show somebody a name? Can I show you my name? I can tell you my name, but I can't show you my name. So there's something interesting going on here. God says, I'm going to show you. You want to see my glory? I'm going to give you my name. Because my name is my glory and everything about me. But there's a problem here with this bold request because Moses wants to see God in all of his full, brilliant, blazing glory. But what does God say to Moses there in verse 20? Uh, you, You can't see my face. For man shall not see my face and live. If you were to look at God in the face, you would die, Moses. His holiness would burn away your sinful eyes, Moses. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 says, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom. It cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. And then 1 Timothy 6.16 says this, Who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, with whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. The German commentators, Kyle and Dalich, uh, make a great statement about this. They say, quote, As our bodily eye is dazzled and its power of vision destroyed by looking directly at the brightness of the sun, so would our whole nature be destroyed by an unveiled sight of the brilliance of the glory of God. You know, like when you look at the sun, you, know, you tell kids, don't look at the sun. You're going to burn your eyes if you look at directly at the sun. Well, you, you go blind if you look at the sun. God here says, Moses, if you look at me directly, you're not just going to go blind, but your whole body will be destroyed because I'm too brilliant for you to look at. No man can look at me and live. And so what does God do? God places Moses in the cleft of the rock, sticks him in a little alcove there and says, okay, Moses, turn, turn around. <laughs> you can only see my backside glory, but you can't see me face to face or you will die. And then in verse 23, well, in verse 22, I'll cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you will see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So God says to Moses, you're asking something that I cannot grant you. You cannot see my full glory and live. But what I am going to grant you, Moses, 
you will see my backside glory, and my glory is going to be revealed in the goodness of my name. Which is very, very important, God's name. So, the question that we've got to ask before we launch into verse chapter 34 is this. Do you have the same passion as Moses? Do you find yourself with that heart of Moses saying, God, I want to know your ways more deeply. God, I haven't figured you out. I want to pursue you. I want to see you. I want to, I want to desire you. Please show me your ways. Please show me your glory. Do you have a holy dissatisfaction with the status quo of where you are with Christ right now? Maybe it's kind of stagnant. Maybe it's kind of dry and lifeless. And you find yourself just kind of going through life, but you don't really have that desire to pursue Christ as your all. Psalm 115.1 says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Let's keep reading. What happens next? Chapter 34. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on the mountain as the Lord had commanded him. And he took his hand, two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. What happened with the original Ten Commandments? Remember? Moses shattered them at the base of the mountain when he came down and they were carousing with the golden ant calf. And so God says, listen, we're going to start over again. And hopefully Israel learns this lesson this time while Moses is up on the mountain. They don't go crazy again. And so God's going to refashion the Ten Commandments to be brought down again. But God, most importantly, is going to reveal something to Moses that we see for the very first time in the Bible that's repeated all throughout the Old Testament. If there's a John 3.16 in the Old Testament, it's right here. It's the name of the Lord and all of His attributes. Verse 6 is what we call the beginning of the credo or the John 3.16 or the most important important revelation of who God is. So look at verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. Okay, let's just stop right there. Is God stuttering? The Lord, the Lord. Why does God have to say his name twice? Why can't he just say the Lord? Here's why he says it twice, I believe. God wants to reinforce to Moses his covenant name, the Lord, that I am alone, the unchangeable, sovereign I am, 
who has sovereign rights over your life. I am the Lord times two. Remember back in Exodus 3.14? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you, the Lord. And what God's going to say here, we see all over the Old Testament, but it shows up first here. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the Father on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This credo, this statement, this confession of who God is shows up all throughout the Old Testament. Nehemiah 9, 17 through 19 They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt, and he committed great blasphemies, You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, or the pillar of fire by night, or light for them by the way for which they should go. Gracious, merciful, abounding in steadfast love, slow to anger. Psalm 86, 15. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Shows up about two or three other times in the Psalms, but Joel 2, 12 through 13. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. And then Jonah, when Jonah gets mad that God spares Nineveh, remember, God doesn't destroy Nineveh, and Jonah gets mad and throws it back in God's face and says, I know why you didn't destroy them. Jonah 4.2, he prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. These are powerful words that I want us to let sink into our hearts this morning. And I want you to hear them as if it's the very first time you've heard these words. This is your God. The Lord is merciful. The word here conveys the way a nursing mother would show compassion on a helpless baby. In other words, it's this whole idea that we are utterly helpless and hopeless and hell-bound before a holy God, and he comes and shows us mercy even though we don't deserve it. The Lord is merciful. We have nothing to offer him, but he condescends to us in our spiritual bankruptcy and meets us at our point of desperation. The Lord is gracious, 
The word image in the original language is a king that bends down to his subjects and grants gifts to rebels that don't deserve any type of gifts. God acts graciously and generously, knowing all along that we could never pay him back. He's gracious. The Lord is snow to anger. Literally, he doesn't snort like a horse in the original language. God's got a high threshold of patience towards our sin. He doesn't fly off the handle, but he is patient towards us. Aren't you thankful for the endless patience of our holy God? The Lord is abounding in steadfast love. Don't spit on the person next to you that you know what this word is. Chesed. Chesed. Chesed is the Hebrew word. It's a tenacious, powerful, loyal love that God has for you where he will hold on to you and never let you go. It's a steadfast love. It's the most powerful expression in the Old Testament of God's love for you. The Lord is abounding not only in steadfast love, but faithfulness. The Lord abounds in faithfulness. It means God has strong arms the way a parent holds a helpless infant. He's trustworthy. We can count on him as our firm foundation. He's an immovable tower. He's our confidence. He's our hope. The Lord is a forgiving God, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions. Psalm 103.12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does our God remove our transgressions from us. But I want to issue a warning here because the Lord is also just and righteous. Notice what it says. He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity on the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Yes, God is loving and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But if you do not repent of your sins and have a relationship with Jesus Christ, that cannot be said for you. It's only for those who are in a covenant relationship with Jesus where you have admitted your sin, you've confessed him as your Lord and Savior, these things are true only if you have a relationship with God through Jesus. The language here is parental imagery. Parental imagery. If you're a parent, you understand this. It's, it's like God is carrying us in his arms. Isaiah says this about God. Isaiah 40, verse 10. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the, limbs in, the, the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are young. It's parental imagery here. Okay, When my firstborn son, Aiden, was born... Um, the umbilical cord was tied around his neck, and so he immediately had to go to an oxygen tent for the first few hours of his life. So neither Don and I got to hold him directly in those few moments of his life. And so Don didn't even really have a chance to go down and, and visit Aiden yet because she was still in recovery. And so I got to go down to the tent, and I put my little hand inside the tent, and Aiden grabbed my hand. I couldn't hold him. 
but he grabbed onto me. In those first few moments of his life, he just grabbed on. And I looked down and I thought, that's a picture of me and God. I'm a hopeless little baby that can't do anything. All I can do is hold on to dear life. And I've got a powerful dad, a father, who holds me like no other. And eventually we got to hold Aiden and, we, and all that type of stuff. But in those few, first few moments, it was just a visual reminder that as sinners before a holy God, we're helpless. That God picks us up and he holds us. And he never lets us go. And none of us are perfect parents. And we love our children, but think about how much God, the perfect parent, loves you. You've got a perfect father who loves you. Now, think about Moses. What's Moses been asking? God, I want to know your ways. God, I want to know your glory. God puts him in the cleft of the rock and sees his backside glory, and God gives him his name. So we have to ask the question, what's the only appropriate response to this God? Look at verse 8. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. That's the only appropriate response to the glory of God. You don't say anything. You can't say anything. You can't do anything. All you do is you fall flat on your face. And notice how it says Moses quickly. Look at it. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And that word worship in the original language means he got down on his face. He prostrated himself on the ground in a posture before the living God. And then this cracks me up because Moses gets back up and says, God, I got three more requests. <laughs> you're like, you're kind of bold, Moses. You've just seen God's glory. Now you're asking for three things. But think about it. If you have a loving Heavenly Father, why don't you go boldly to His throne of grace? He's your Heavenly Father. You can ask Him for things. So what does Moses ask? You got there in verse 9. The first request, if I've now found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. <laughs> Moses is still concerned. God, please go with us. This is my biggest concern is you go with us, God. You've got to lead us. You've got to take us. That's the first thing. Second request, please forgive us. We're a stick-neck people. Pardon our iniquity. Please forgive us. We've got to be forgiven before we move forward. We've got to know that you have forgiven us. And then the last thing is, Lord, take us as your inheritance. We're your people. We're your covenant people. We're your chosen people. Take us as your inheritance. Please do this. Now, what I want to encourage you to do this week is to take this list these lists of things that we just looked at and study them and pray over them and ask the Lord to reveal himself to you. Do you want more of Jesus? Do you desire his full glory? Now, 
we're not going to experience the absolute full glory of God until we get to heaven. We won't see the full glory of God until we get to heaven. Not until that day will we see it all in its fullness, but right now we can still desire to have more of him. But the way we understand God's glory is by understanding his character, his name, his goodness. So let's look at these descriptions again and hear them as if it's the very first time you've heard these words. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Behold our God. This is our God, the living God, the God who has saved us, the God who has called us, the God who loves us, the God who leaves, leads and guides us, the God who will never abandon us. Behold our God. And the only appropriate response is to be like Moses and to bow before this God and worship. So I'm going to ask us to do that. If you are physically able, I would like for us to kneel before the living God. And just fall on our faces for just a few moments this morning. And behold our God. Worship our God. Praise our God. We're bowing our physical bodies before you in this moment. Let these truths of your word ring in our hearts that you're gracious, that you're merciful, that you're slow to anger, that you're abounding in steadfast love, that you're faithful, that you're forgiving. Lord, help us not just to know these in our heads, but to experience them in our hearts and our lives as we leave this place, to live with confidence, to know that this is the God we worship. Father, you revealed to us your name, the Lord. So would we desire more of you, Father? Jesus, would we pursue you the way Paul desires nothing but the surpassing worth of knowing you considers everything rubbish. And Holy Spirit, would you inflame our hearts to be able to have eyes to see the glory of God every day as we await the final day when we will see your glory when you come back on the clouds. We just want to pause on our knees and say, Jesus, we love you. We honor you. We thank you. We submit to you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for holding us in your arms. Thank, thank you for stooping down and dying on the cross for our sins and rising again. That we might have eternal life and forgiveness of sin. Would we never take for granted 
the God that we worship. Behold our God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.